0: You're listening to Community Radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Monday, September 26th. I'm Claudio Mendoza, and this is the KVMR Evening News. The Task Force to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for African Americans, also known as the Reparations Task Force, held a two-day public hearing on Friday and Saturday where they invited a team of experts to attach dollar amounts to current reparation ideas. The California report brings us the story. National Native News details the approval of Alaska's request for a major disaster declaration in the wake of Typhoon Murbach. And after regional news and weather, Al Stoller talks with Shelly Covert, spokesperson for the Nevada City Rancheria Nisanon Tribe.
1: This is the California Report. I'm Mari Bolaños in San Francisco. After a summer break, the state task force studying reparations for Black Californians has resumed its groundbreaking work. Over the weekend, the panel met in Los Angeles to move the conversation forward and talk about lessons they can draw from historical reparations work, plus the actual economics of the plan. KQED's Annalise Finney was at the task force meeting in Los Angeles and joins me now. Hi, Annalise. Hey, Madi. So Annalise, as the task force
2: starts working on its reparations plan, are there any models they're relying on? Well, California is the first state in the nation to try to come up with a statewide black reparations plan. So to some extent, they're in uncharted waters. But at the meeting this weekend, the state task force heard from Japanese-American activists who fought for and won reparations in the 1980s for their incarceration during World War II. So these activists were invited to the meeting to share their experiences. Mia Iwataki was one of those activists. At the meeting, she said a multiracial coalition helped push the reparations bill through Congress. We recognize the origin of this violence and racism began with the white supremacist and colonialist actions against indigenous peoples and kidnapped and enslaved Africans. She told the task force and the audience that allies were essential to the success of Japanese-American reparations because they, like African-Americans, represent a small portion of the population.
1: Are there other models the task force is looking into?
2: Yeah, so the task force also heard from our experts about reparations processes in other places around the world. For example, in South Africa, people who were eligible for reparations were given a one-time cash payment. And in Chile, reparations were more like pensions and are still being paid out today. Okay, so I imagine the task force is also looking to Black Californians for guidance on what the reparation plan should look like, right? Yeah, so every task force meeting opens with an hour of public comment, where people can share their ideas about what reparations should look like. During public comment on the first day, retired Professor Emeritus Joyce Faye Allen Hamilton took the mic. What do
1: elderly Black Americans need for the California reparation? As an elderly Black American, my sisters and I, including my husband, his father was a sharecropper. We do not need to continue our education, nor obtain jobs, nor housing. What we would like is monetary compensation, loan forgiveness.
2: Also at the meeting were UCLA researchers who presented the results of a community engagement study. What they found was that cash payments were most popular among Black people surveyed but for the general population of the state, the findings were a little bit different. Here's Professor Michael Stoll.
0: Majority of Californians support direct cash remedies to compensate for harms to African-Americans, but there's stronger support, as measured by the survey, for monetary measures that don't include cash.
2: In the survey, they describe monetary programs as things like free college tuition and interest-free home or business loans.
1: Cash payments seem like a hot topic among these discussions. How much money are we talking about here?
2: Well, there's still a lot to be figured out about that question. And it hasn't even been decided yet whether cash payments will be a part of the ultimate reparations plan. But nonetheless, the task force is working with a team of economists whose job it is to figure out how much money racist policies cost black Californians. To give you a sense of it, here's how economists are calculating the cost of redlining. They're taking the average per person housing wealth difference between white and black residents in 1980, which is around the time that redlining was outlawed, and then multiplying it by the number of Black residents in the state at that time, which the economists calculate comes out to around $570 billion. The economists suggest that that money could then be divided between current Black residents who could prove they lived or are descendants of people who lived in the state while redlining was law. That sounds complicated. What's next? They're expected to submit their final recommendations to the legislature in June. But it doesn't end there. In order for reparations to happen, the recommendations will have to be made into law by a vote in the legislature, and then funded in the state budget. That was KQED's Annalise Finney. Thanks, Annalise. Thanks, Maddie.
1: Support for the California Report comes from Stanford HealthCare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now's the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org Personal Capital providing people with financial tools like the Retirement Planner to help them achieve their financial goals, personalcapital.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, coming this fall, the launch of research vessel FALCOR-2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, on the web at schmidtocean.org Mental health workers with Kaiser Permanente Northern California have overwhelmingly rejected a contract offer from the health care provider that would end their strike that's now entering its seventh week. The union representing the therapist says that Kaiser's proposal was nearly unchanged from when the strike began back in August. Therapists say they want to strategically pace initial intakes to help ensure timely follow-ups with patients. In a statement, Kaiser suggested that the union's, quote, aggressive proposal would actually increase the time patients have to wait between appointments. In other news, this month marks the 20th anniversary of the passage of paid family leave in California, the first state to offer this benefit to workers taking time off to bond with a new child or care for an ill relative. KQED's labor correspondent Farida Javala Romero reports.
3: Then-Governor Gray Davis signed the law on September 23, 2002. Most workers in the state fund the paid leave program through a payroll tax and can get a fraction of their wages for up to eight weeks. Governor Gavin Newsom spoke to family advocates celebrating the anniversary.
0: Our nation-leading paid leave program is family and small business friendly, and it creates an equitable and inclusive model, we believe, for the rest of the country.
3: As it happens, Newsom is considering a bill on his desk that would increase payments to 90% of a person's wages if they're low income, or 70% for all other eligible workers. Now it's just 60%, which Rosalba Contreras of San Bernardino County says was not enough when she had her baby. So we couldn't afford rent, food, food bills, everything that goes on top. She spent just two weeks bonding with her preemie before she had to return to the office. I could have
2: probably spent more time with her to make sure that she was healthy before I even returned back to work because she wasn't healthy. She wasn't ready and I wasn't ready. Neither of us were.
3: She wants Newsom to support SB 951. He has until September 30th to sign or veto. For The California Report, I'm Farida Yavala-Romero.
1: And that's the California Report for Monday, September 26th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great
0: day. President Biden approved the state of Alaska's request for a major disaster declaration on Friday. The western part of the state was hit hard recently by a major storm. The approval ushers in additional aid to help communities with their ongoing recovery efforts.
4: This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Biden administration on Friday approved a request from Alaska's governor for a federal disaster declaration after a powerful storm battered more than a thousand miles of coastline in the northernmost state last weekend. The declaration frees up funding through the Federal Emergency Management Agency to aid in storm recovery. As Emily Schwing reports, more than 40 Alaska Native communities are now facing a serious threat to their food security.
5: In at least two communities, dozens of residents have been displaced after their homes were ripped from their foundations by floodwater. The storm surge included hurricane-force winds that also destroyed boats people rely on for both transportation and hunting and fishing. Ryan Bukowski is one of nearly 1,000 residents in the village of Chivak.
6: I mean, even the people that go out... With working boats right now, that's not even enough to feed the community with what subsistence food that they need that they haven't already lost due to power outage.
5: Bukowski and many other Alaskans lost power for days after the storm. Without electricity, the freezers where many people store all their fish, meat and berries and other locally harvested foods for winter have thawed, lots of that food is now spoiled dozens of hunting and fishing camps central to the subsistence lifestyle observed by many residents in rural Alaska were also damaged or destroyed. For National Native News, I'm Emily Schwing.
4: Communities of color remain consistently affected by COVID-19 at higher rates than whites. That's according to an Oregon Health Authority review. KLCC's Brian Bull reports.
0: OHA's latest year-in-review report shows that in both 2020 and 2021, Black, Native American, and Latinx Oregonians suffered higher rates of hospitalizations and death than whites. Researchers list lack of access to health care, lower-income jobs, crowded workspaces, and distrust in government as factors. Kelly Rouse, the Executive Director of Health Services for the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde. She says OHA's finding matches what she's seen this year as well.
7: We are still having fairly high rates of COVID infection out at Grand Ronde. Right after the holiday, Labor Day weekend, mostly the a 5 this most recent variant is incredibly infectious. You know, the congregating people, it really rose pretty significantly.
0: OHA says data on race was available for 73% of all reported cases last year. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull.
4: California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a package of five tribal bills on Friday. One requires state agency leaders to take training, improve communication, and interact with tribes on government-to-government issues. The second one creates a feather alert system for missing and murdered indigenous people. It's similar to those used in cases of abducted children. The third encourages schools and county offices to engage with tribes in their area and provide accurate education about Native history and culture. The fourth bill authorizes the University of California Hastings College of Law to remove the name of its founder who slaughtered tribal people in the 1800s and rename the school with tribal input. The fifth bill requires the renaming of California Geographic Features, Landmarks, Public Lands, and Structures that use the S-Q word by January 1st, 2024. All five bills were authored by Native American lawmaker James Ramos. The governor signed the package of bills on California Native American Day. I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
0: National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. There's no
4: reason to let uncertainty about the election process keep you from voting. That's why AARP created state-specific, comprehensive election guides. Learn more at aarp.org slash electionguides. AARP supports this show. Did you know 1 in 26 people will develop epilepsy during their lifetime? Or that 1 in 10 people will have a seizure? Call 1-800-332-1000 to speak with an epilepsy information specialist. The Epilepsy Foundation supports
0: this show. Native Voice 1, the Native American Radio Network. In local news... Reuters is reporting that PG&E is cooperating with the US Forest Service after the federal agency started a criminal investigation into the Mosquito Fire. Now 76,781 acres and 85% contained, the blaze is California's largest wildfire this year. PG&E said in a filing that the U.S. Forest Service removed and took possession of one of its utility transmission poles and equipment on September 24th as part of the investigation. In an email, a PG&E spokesperson told Reuters that the company is conducting their own investigation into the events that led to the fire, but did not have access to the physical evidence collected by the Forest Service over the weekend. The spokesperson reiterated that the Forest Service had not made a determination on the cause of the fire. Earlier this month, PG&E said there had been electrical activity near one of its transmission poles in the area around Oxbow Reservoir, where the fire began on September 6th. The power company's equipment has been blamed for sparking numerous wildfires, including some of California's most deadly and destructive. And according to National Public Radio, The California Air Resources Board voted Thursday to ban the sale of new gas furnaces and water heaters beginning in 2030, making the Golden State the first in the nation to begin making fossil fuel furnaces and heaters a thing of the past. Homes will be required to install zero-emission alternatives, like electric heaters. The move is designed to meet EPA regulations limiting ozone in the atmosphere to 70 parts per billion. The heater's requirement was met with comments from the public, including opposition. Retired engineer Michael Kapalnick said the saved emissions don't justify the cost to homeowners forced into expensive retrofits, such as upgrading electrical service. Groups such as the American Lung Association and the Sierra Club supported the move. Buildings account for about 5% of the state's nitrogen oxide pollution, better known as NOx, a key ingredient in California's notorious smog. CARB says nearly 90% of those emissions are from space and water heaters. The rest come from things like cooking and drying clothes. This latest action will speed California's transition away from fossil fuels to cleaner forms of energy, and it arrives on top of other aggressive climate decisions state officials made this year. Last month, CARB addressed the state's largest source of pollution, transportation, by banning the sale of new gasoline-powered passenger cars and light-duty trucks beginning in 2035. And last week, the California Public Utilities Commission unanimously voted to get rid of subsidies that incentivized builders to install gas lines to new buildings starting next year. Turning to the forecast from the National Weather Service and air quality data from purpleair.com, Warm, sunny days and mostly clear nights are expected in our region throughout the week. It will be mostly clear tonight in Nevada City and Grass Valley, with a low around 62 degrees. This afternoon's air quality index was averaging around 15, which is good. Tuesday will be sunny, with a high near 85 and a low of 59. In Truckee and the Lake Tahoe area, mostly clear, with a low around 47, and the AQI is in the single digits. Tuesday will be sunny with a high in the mid 70s and a low in the mid 40s. Tuesday's forecast includes light winds of 5 to 10 miles per hour with gusts as high as 20 miles per hour. And in Sacramento and Woodland tonight, clear with a low of 59 degrees. The air quality index is averaging in the 20s, which is satisfactory. Tuesday will be sunny with a high near 87 and a low in the mid 60s. You're listening to the evening news on KVMR. Local Native Americans will observe Orange Shirt Day this Friday in an effort to educate the public about the Indian boarding schools of just a few generations ago. Al Stoller spoke with Shelly Covert of the Nevada City Nisanon tribe for the details.
6: Shelly, how did Native American children come to arrive at Indian boarding schools?
7: Were forcibly removed from their homes and families and taken to church-run boarding schools. And that was done to, quote, kill the Indian and save the man, to take the culture away from the Native people, to civilize them. And this was funded by the federal government. This is a topic that a lot of people just don't know about. It's not taught in our schools. It's not reflected in our history. If you know a Native person, nine out of ten times, their parents or grandparents were one of the kids interned in the boarding schools. The statistics are just staggering.
6: It's kind of (laughs) astonishing that these schools can be run by a church group, and yet they sound very abusive.
7: My own grandpa, my mom's dad. He and all his siblings were taken from their family right down here on Rice's Crossing, right down here by our covered bridge. So it's between French Corral and Dobbins down by Bridgeport. His brother David was sent to Haskell Indian Boarding School, which is way out in Kansas, and he died there. And the family never knew how he died, and his body was never returned home. So with Deb Holland now that she's in, the, in her position in the federal government, Deb Holland is the Secretary of the Interior.
6: And she's a Native American.
7: She's a Native woman. She brought focus to have this study happen here, to look into those schools and see if each school has or doesn't have Indian graves around the school.
6: This Friday is Orange Shirt Day. What is the significance of the orange shirt?
7: This woman, whose name is Phyllis Webstat, when she was taken to the mission boarding schools when she was six years old, they were really poor, and her grandma had gotten her an orange shirt and made it really nice with some laces and stuff in front to send her to school that day in a shirt that was really bright, and she really loved her shirt, When she got to the boarding school, the first thing they did was strip the kids and she was never allowed to have it back, and she was never allowed to wear it again. For the rest of her life, the orange shirt was this significant piece of her identity loss and how she felt like nothing and she didn't matter. She said that she was crying and the other kids were crying and nobody cared. Turning that story around, it's beautiful now to have that orange shirt be a symbol for the recognition and acknowledgement and honoring of all those kids who were stripped of their cultural identities and some who never got to come home at all because they died there.
6: Kill the Indian, save a man. Part of killing the Indian, if I'm not mistaken, was forbidding the kids to speak their own language.
7: No cultural identity whatsoever. They were very militant in the haircutting and the uniforms, having to march in line, work, do their jobs, not cry. A lot of the elders that went to boarding school have substance or alcohol issues. They have violence issues in themselves and with their families. And this kind of trauma rolls forward through the generations. Most of my family members were taken to Greenville Indian School. When that burned down, they went up to Fort Bidwell Indian School. Greenville is in Plumas County and Bidwell is up at the very north border of California. A lot of kids were sent down to Riverside down in Southern California. They really wanted to break up the family unit and to deculturize is the only word I can think of is to take away that Indian identity, teach them how to be employable. So they would learn a lot of vocational job skills while they were at these places. And some of them worked like little slaves, like they were tasked with gardening to feed themselves at the schools, and they had to do a lot of hard labor.
6: I'm speaking with Shelly Covert, spokesperson for the Nevada City Rancheria Nisanon tribe. Our Shirt Day will be observed here in Nevada County in a peaceful informational meeting. Friday from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Sierra Pines Methodist Church on West Hacienda Drive. That's down Highway 49 south of Grass Valley. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller.
0: That's our newscast for Monday, September 26th. KVMR gets support from our generous listeners... And from businesses like MEC Builds, Nevada County roofing contractor with over 20 years of experience, providing complete roofing services, gutter products, sun tunnels, and skylights. The showroom is at 316 Colfax Avenue in Grass Valley. MECBuilds.com And the Auburn State Theater, presenting Kathy Mattea and Susie Bogus, Together at Last, Friday, October 7th at 730 Auburn State Theater information is at livefromauburn.com. I'm Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting local media. We'll see you right here tomorrow at 6 o'clock for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.